you would open with me in your Bibles to the 13th chapter of 2 Corinthians. We'll be finishing the book today, at least for those of you here. I'm going to go back and do a few more sermons when I get home. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 13, we'll be looking at, we'll read the whole chapter, but we're only looking at verses 11 through 14 today. Paul is wrapping up his letter in this section. He's rebuked them for their divisions. He's rebuked them for their sin. He's rebuked them for their tolerance of sin. And he's rebuked them for following these false teachers and listening to essentially their trash talk and their, their glorification of their sins and their life apart from God. And with all of this, he's now concluding with what, what is a beautiful call for the Christian to live as a disciple of Christ. He's asked them the question, you know, are you in the faith? Test yourselves, examine yourselves. And now he says, finally, brothers. And so let us read that chapter and we will consider those things. Second Corinthians chapter 13. This is the third time I am writing to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all others. And I warn them now while I am absent, as I did when I was present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may do no wrong. Not that you, we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, that we may seem to have failed, for we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for the building up, not for the tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come now to Paul's final greetings in the book of Second Corinthians, we see his final call, his final admonition for the church to be true disciples of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, as we consider these things, we pray that you would open our hearts, open our eyes, open our ears, that we might hear, that we might see, that we might receive the things of your word and put them into action in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so, as I said, we'll be looking at verses 11 through 14 this morning. It starts it off 
his closing, finally, brothers, the last things he's going to say to them in his letter, the last things he's going to write to them. And he's really, he's pouring out his heart's desire here. He wants them to be able to live their life as true disciples of Christ, live their lives from their heart as disciples of the Lord. And he starts it off with the call to rejoice. And that's really the theme throughout this whole section is rejoice, rejoicing in the Lord. Have great joy in the Lord because that is part of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. He ends his letters often with similar things. And in Philippians, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. There's a classic hymn with that as its theme, as well as a modern ditty. But it's the call for the Christian to, to rejoice in the Lord. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. For in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. For the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. Oh, wrong verse. And everything by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 4 through 7. That's his conclusion there. And he makes similar conclusions in many of his books. His desire for them, his call for them to rejoice in the Lord. I, I remember learning about the frozen chosen as an atheist in Massachusetts in college. The Christians who were real Christians had dour faces. They never smiled. They never laughed. They never had fun. And I thought that was what it meant to be a Christian. Uh, they were mocking the Puritan forefathers who had come to New England. Uh, that's not what God's word says. It says rejoice. We should have great joy in God. It's a frequent call throughout the Old and the New Testament. One of the longer sections in the Old Testament where it talks about our joy helps to give us some perspective on the things we should be rejoicing in. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 22 through 27, he's talking about their tithe and a celebration before the Lord. He says, you shall tithe all the yield of the seed that comes from your field year by year. And before the Lord your God in a place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat of your tithe of your grain, of your wine, of your oil, of your firstborn, of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And if the way is too long for you and you're not able to carry the tithe, then when the Lord your God blesses you, because your place is too far from you, then the place which the Lord has chosen is too far from you, then you set his name there, then you shall turn it into money. Bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that your Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire. Oxen, sheep, wine, strong drink, whatever your appetite craves. And you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. And you shall not neglect the Levite who is in your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. Now, we were, they were to come before the Lord, bringing the bounty that the Lord had given them, the increase of their crops, and they were to have a celebration before the Lord and rejoice before God. All that God has given us is, all that we have really is what God has given us, and all that he has given us is wonderful things 
to rejoice in. We can say with the psalmist, may those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. Psalm 70, verse 4. Our God is our God. And we should be filled with joy because of his greatness, because of his wonderfulness, because of his grace to us. What does every sin deserve, our catechism asks? My answer is a bit longer, an eternity of torment in hell. God's wrath and curse both in this life and that eternity of torment in hell. What do I get? Not better than that. Even with all the sickness and all the health problems and the persecutions and the trials and the troubles and the heartaches, it is much better than I deserve. But God has promised me even greater. He has promised me a blessing in eternity where there will be no more tears, no more sorrow, nothing to stumble us, nothing to harm us. Joy everlasting for 10,000 times 10,000 years and more. And so I can say great is the salvation of the Lord and I can say I rejoice in him. In the New Testament, Paul wrote, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, Romans 12, 15. Now it's easy for us to weep with those who weep, is it not? We can feel their pain and their sorrow. We can commiserate with them. We can comfort them, which comes down a little later. But what happens when others are rejoicing? Well, if it's a shared joy, we rejoice with them. But a lot of times, we struggle to rejoice with people who are happy when we're not. We're having a bad day, and they've had this wonderful thing happen. And we just got the news. We have cancer. We have Parkinson's. We have Alzheimer's. And somebody is coming in rejoicing that the Lord did this wonderful thing and I got a new job or I finally have enough money saved up for a down payment on a house. Rejoice with me. That gets a little hard even for many Christians. It's hard to say your joy is my joy when I get nothing. And all too often Christians become jealous. Other people have received this blessing and I haven't received anything good lately. And we are jealous with them and the blessings they've received. We've become a killjoy. The killjoy who covets the blessings and joy of others and wants to ruin their joy, wants to find fault with what they're happy about, or wants to make it seem like sin. Oh, you're rejoicing in worldly things. You're not very good Christian. You're not very devout. You should be dour like me. And we kill the joy. And it's our heart. It's sinful. We need to rejoice in their joy instead of robbing them of their joy. And we need to have that joy be our joy as a church, as people of God. When somebody has been blessed by God, we should rejoice in the blessing they have received. Now, if somebody's rejoicing in something sinful, we don't rejoice with them. We correct them. But we should have mutual joy. I remember Paul's joy. He says, rejoice in the Lord greatly. That now I rejoice in the Lord greatly. Now that I have received your concern for me, they sent him a love gift to support his ministry. He said, you are indeed concerned for me, but had no opportunity. I'm not speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. Philippians 4, 10 and 11. He could rejoice in the good that was done to him, but he could also rejoice in his sorrows. Because he understood sorrows in this life are not the end. 
They are just part of the means to bring us to the end, the great end that the Lord has in mind for us. Remember what Jesus said in this Beatitudes? Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Matthew 5, 11 and 12. We can rejoice even in our troubles. Uh, maybe it's not persecution. In persecution, we should be rejoicing. But even in sorrows and heartaches. We'll look at that a little later, what Paul said earlier in this book. But just because we have sorrows doesn't mean the Lord has left us. He is still our God. He is still with us. He is still the reason we have joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Now in verse 5 last week, we talked about, roundabout way at least, one of the things we have to rejoice about, one of the greatest things we have to rejoice about. And remember verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, of course, you fail to meet the test. Now Paul was admonishing them and us to examine ourselves, to test ourselves, and we talked about how there were many things to see in Scripture to test ourselves. Do we sense that new heart, that transformation of life, that we're not the old man that we were before we came to Christ? Do we see that? Is that not an evidence that God has taken out that heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh? That he's put his spirit in us? That is evidence. When we see that, we can have confidence. We can have joy. God is with me. Do we earnestly desire and work towards a more faithful obedience to God's revealed will of the Bible. As we see that we want to do that, we read something, we go, that is not what I was taught as a child. That is not what I learned in public schools. That is not the way the world around me behaves. But that is what God says, and that is now what I want. When we see that in ourselves, we can have that, that building of confidence. That is not the spirit of the world. That is the Holy Spirit put in my heart by the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can have confidence. We can have assurance of our salvation. Do we feel that conviction of sins? Is our conscience truly grieved for them? Do we understand that we have offended God when we sin? Offended the holy God who sent his son to die for us? You know, when we feel that level of conviction, we, not the conviction of, oh man, people are going to find out about this and I'm going to be embarrassed, but that conviction of, I have offended God. So even in the worst of our sins, we can get that assurance that I am a child of God because I, I feel that way about my actions in his presence. We have that true peace of conscience, knowing that as a disciple of Christ, he has really paid for those sins. If we, are faith, if we confess them, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. We are cleansed by the blood of Christ. Do we really feel that? You know, if we've examined ourselves and we know that Jesus Christ is in us, to use the phrase in verse 5, then we have great joy. We, we know that we belong to Christ. We know that we are his child. We are not the old man. We are not doomed to an eternity of torment in hell as just punishment for our sins. But we are promised an eternity with God in heaven. Now, I've heard some claim that it's presumptuous to be confident in your salvation. To them, I just quote scripture. 2 Peter 1.10 Therefore, brothers, 
Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and your election. For if you practice these qualities, he's given a list of godly behaviors, you'll never fall. Is it carnal to have assurance of salvation when we're told to confirm our election and our calling? You know, if God tells us we should be confirming it, don't we need to then be examining our hearts, as Paul says, seeing whether or not we really are in Christ? I've met many Christians who have the he loves me, he loves me not attitude. Oh, I was doing well and I know God loved me, but then I stumbled in sin and I think God hates me and I'm not saved. But I want to get saved again, so I'm going to do what God says. And they spend their whole life without any hope, without any assurance. A pastor friend of mine went to a funeral and in the Orthodox Church, not the Orthodox Presbyterian, but the Orthodox Church. They're half Roman Catholic from the Eastern areas. Anyway, the pastor could give no hope of salvation for the woman who died. He had no confidence. He didn't know. Well, she was doing well for a while, but we don't know how she ended. That's not what the Bible teaches us. You know, examine ourselves. Be diligent to confirm your calling and election. Be hopeful. Paul said to Timothy, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. He had full confidence that God could do it because he had entrusted it into Christ, his Savior. Not his own works, but in the works of Christ. Our confidence, our joy comes from the promises of God and how he's going to treat us and how he reviews us and how he responds to us. My favorite in all of this is from Romans chapter 8, verse 28 through 30. And I want to read that for you. Think about our confidence here. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, our calling. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. You know, what a great passage of joy for us. We know we've started down that road. It is an unbreakable chain of things that God has promised to do. He does not say, and if you're perfect, if you do this, if you work hard, if I weigh you in the balance and find your sins to be less than your good deed. None of that. It's because God has chosen. He foreknew. He, he decided that person would be someone he would love. He predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son. What was the image of Christ? Perfection. How do we get there? By our hard work? No. By having Christ's righteousness imputed to us through faith. Our righteousness is set aside, Christ is put on us, our sins are taken and imputed to Christ and paid in full on the cross. Our confidence in that is what we see here. The, one, the ones he started with, the ones he decided that I will take these people. He brings them all the way to glorifying them, to bringing them to heaven and giving them the perfections of Christ. No more sin, no more desire for sin, no more corruption, no more nothing like that. Paul said, I am sure of this, that you who began a good work in you will bring it through to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. God is absolutely sovereign. He can accomplish everything he desires. He will accomplish everything he desires. And if he promised to save us and he started down the path of saving us, 
No matter what happens to me in this world, I can look at it just as a little period of time compared to the greatness of all eternity. And I can have great joy. I remember as a college student, I had friends in the Army Reserves who didn't go to college. They were working. And I'm struggling to put retread tires on my car so I can continue to drive to school. And he's driving a new sports car. And you know, I felt envious, but I realized you know, his life is not going to go very far. My life is going to go a bit further because I'm working hard to build the foundation. Well, we are here in this life building that foundation. We are storing treasure in heaven if we're wise. And this is just that little time like college. When it's over, we have eternity with Christ. We have the joys of God. And therefore, no matter what I have to do in this life, I can rejoice in eternity with my Lord and my Savior and my God. And I can be confident, just as Jesus said, rejoice that your names are written in heaven, Luke 10, 20. I can be confident in that. And I need not fear, as Paul said. I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're told to examine ourselves, and I know for some that was a tough passage last week. But if we've looked at ourselves and we see those evidences that God is working in us, that his spirit is in our heart, that we are a new person in Christ, then we can have great joy knowing that we will be with him for eternity in heaven. He continues, and these are really all reasons we can rejoice. Aim for restoration. We need to restore our relationship First with God, and that is restored through faith in Christ, being born again. Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us this ministry of reconciliation. That is, Christ, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses against them, and entrusting to us this message of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17-19. We've been, had that relationship restored with God. That's not specifically what Paul is talking about here, but that is really the first step. Having that new life in Christ, having our relationship with God restored, we then can work on our relationships with others. I think Paul here is partially referring to those who sin and had been brought back, they repented, they confessed, they turned back to God, and Paul says, you know, it's enough. Welcome them back, restore them. But more specifically, I think he's looking at the rest restoration we saw back in verse 9 that Paul is praying for, this you know, restoration of their relationships with each other. Uh, the divisions within the church were a major problem, not just their division with Paul and following these false teachers and you know, setting Paul aside and treating his message of salvation with contempt, there were divisions in the early church. And no doubt this was influenced by the pagan Greco-Roman philosophical culture they had. You, you, know, you went and you listened and you looked at the life they had, their wealth, their power, their authority, their glory, how they were respected, and you picked the best guru. I, I know that's Indian, but the same difference. You picked the best person and you followed them. 
the one who has the best life. And they're saying, oh, look at this Paul guy. I mean, you want to be like him? Stoned and flogged and beaten and chased from town to town and struggling without money and hardships all the time? Is that what you want? If you follow his message, if you follow Christ, you'll end up like Christ. If you follow Paul, you'll end up like Paul. Follow us. We're better. That was their message, but they were turning people away from God and away from Paul. And so there were these divisions. We see this in the beginning of his first letter, 1 Corinthians, his first letter to them. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you, my brother. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? Rhetorical questions, of course not. Christ is not divided. We are one in Christ. Now, I'm not saying that all the divisions in the church were sin. Paul says when he comes to the topic of the Lord's Supper, he says, for when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. There must be factions, for there must be factions among you in order for those who are genuine among you to be recognized. Uh, it's often abused, this concept, but there, there are people in Christ and there are people not in Christ. And it's hard to have a relationship together. As Paul writes, and I hate to quote this passage sometimes because it is so often abused, but I give it to you because it's God's word. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What partnership does righteousness have with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them. Says the Lord, touch no unclean thing, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters. You know, with the unbelievers in the church who were not willing to submit to God's word, who were despising the authority of God and his word to teach them how to live their lives, there was no fellowship. But within the body of Christ, there must be unity. I've uh, been in churches where there are big factions. In fact, one of the churches I went to before I became a Christian, they had an after-church fellowship hour that they invited me, everyone to. And I stood there in the gymnasium, and there was a group of you know, 20 people here, 30 there, 50 there. And I stood there alone, and nobody spoke to me. And there were factions. And I've seen it in churches where those factions are at odds with each other, and friction and sparks and little fires are starting all the time. That's what we don't want. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we must be in agreement with each other. We must be at peace with one another. We must be looking to reconcile those relationships. And a lot of times it comes from something that happened a long time ago. And you just talk it out and you repent and get forgiveness from both sides and you can be reconciled. And that's what we're talking about, that unity of Christ. For we are in one spirit. We were baptized into one body, Jews, Greeks, slaves, free. All were made to drink of one spirit. He wrote that to them in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. It's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, all of one in Christ. And if you're Christ, 
and you are Abraham's heirs according to the promise. We are heirs, fellow heirs of what was promised to Abraham. We need to reconcile with each other. We need to restore those relationships in our lives that are broken with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Biblical restoration, when we see it, especially in a church that's divided or in a house that's divided, you know, we have great cause for joy. When we have that peace once again with our brother or sister in Christ, what a great cause for rejoicing and joy. He goes on to say, comfort one another. Perhaps going back to the beginning of this book, the opening of 2 Corinthians, chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, with the comfort with we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Now we are comforted as God's children when we have those troubles, when we have those sorrows, when we have that misery. God comforts us. And then we are able to comfort somebody. Uh, I've known many people who suffered from cancer and part of their life now is talking to other people who have been diagnosed. Yes, I've been where you are. And this is my hope in God, and this was my hope in that situation. And we were able to mutually comfort each other. I, I remember reading one of the Puritans recently who said something to the effect that if only Christians would spend more time thinking about how they can glorify God in their afflictions rather than in how they can escape their afflictions, praying more for how to glorify God in affliction than praying for escape, what a different world it would be. You know, if you've ever been comforted by somebody who's been where you are, you know what we're talking about. And that's how he starts the book. And now he's finishing it, reminding them, comfort one another. Don't be estranged from their sorrows. Say, oh, I'm glad that's not me. No, that's not the attitude a Christian can have. Comfort one another, and that restores the joy in their life. And when you see them smile again and rejoicing in the Lord, it gives joy to your life. And when it's somebody in the church who's suffering, and their joy is restored through their faith in God and through the comfort of other people, the church can rejoice in what has happened. Agree with one another, he continues. In the beginning of the book, in chapter 1, or in the beginning of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 10, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but you be united in the same mind, and the same judgment. Now we talked about sinful divisions and legitimate divisions. He's calling on unity with the judgment of Christ, with the faithful doctrine and the faithful life of God, not, not having you know, agreement with sin or agreement with corruption, because there is no such thing. We, however, are to seek that agreement John, who's sometimes called the apostle of love, deals with the false teachers and the problems that Paul is dealing with in these two epistles as well. He, Paul calls them uh, what ministers or apostles of Satan at one point. John says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, talking about a biblical teaching, 
Do not receive him in your house or give him any greeting. Whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. John, 2 John 1, 10 and 11. You know, we don't have agreement with sin and corruption and false teachers. We have agreement with one another as a body. And sometimes we have to agree to disagree. Uh, most of my friends do not hold my eschatology. A few do. Uh, many people don't really worry about eschatology. But we agree to disagree. We're in agreement that we love the Lord, that he will return, that there is an eternal eternity to come. We're questioning some of the details. You know, we have little disagreements, but we agree to disagree. And we live in agreement with each other, not getting into fights over foolish things. Psalm 133, verse 1 says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when the brethren dwell together in unity. And we have that agreement, we have that unity as fellow Christians, even though we don't always agree on the fine details. It's okay as long as it's not heresy. And we're called to live at peace. And certainly within the Christian family, this is an absolute requirement. And there's very little more destructive to the church other than tolerating heresy. The next biggest problem would be when there is fighting and no peace in the church. Nothing more disgraceful. We, Jesus, we will know that we are Jesus' disciples by what? By our love. And we have peace with one another. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with all, Romans 12, 18. Yeah, as far as it is possible with us, we, we should try to live peacefully with people. Now, does that mean we don't share the gospel? Does that mean we don't talk about somebody that stumbled into sin and call them to repentance? No, because that's what God obligates us to do and tells us we are to do. The Great Commission says to you know, share with everybody and make disciples of everybody. And that requires both evangelism and dealing with sin. But as far as it's possible, we should live at peace. Now, the godless, we know, hate God. They're raging at war with God. They won't submit to God. They won't be at peace with God. And that spills over onto us because, as Jesus said, the way they treated him is the way they would treat his disciples. They can't see him right now, but they can see us. And they can see Christ in us. What we have to be careful about is how we behave. <clears throat> you know, if we are raging and rampaging against sinners, they're going to hate us, and that's our own fault because we're told to treat them with honor and respect as we share with them the reason for the hope that is in us, according to Peter. You know, honor, respect, patience, long-suffering, those words come up in the way we deal with unbelievers, where we deal with sinners within the church. And that's important. If we deal with them on the way God requires and they're still not at peace with us, you know, we're doing what we can. And that's what we need to be careful of. Those divisions come, but they shouldn't come because of our bad behavior. We get what we deserve when that happens. There was a division in the early church over meat sacrificed idols. Some says, oh, that, if that meat is offered to an idol, it is idolatry to eat the meat. Others said, you know, I, I give thanksgiving to God for the meat, I eat it. I don't care whether it was sacrificed or not, I don't even want to know. And there was a big division and a big fight over it. And during that fight, Paul says, let us pursue what makes for peace and for upbuilding, mutual upbuilding, Romans 14, 19. 
You know, it's not about fighting over little things like that. Paul has stated the case. It's not sin. You thank God for it. It's fine. Don't worry about it. But for some, all they could think of was the idolatry, and they couldn't be part of it. Fine, don't eat it, he says. But let us work on, instead of fighting about that, pursue what makes for peace and for mutual building. Why? Because in time, people will learn, people will grow in their faith, and they will start to realize that's not so important. That's not relevant. It's not idolatry to eat meat, even if it was sacrificed to an idol. And peace comes through that. The gentleness and open to reason is what's needed. And that's what James talks about. James speaks about worldly versus heavenly wisdom. And he says, the wisdom from above is first of all pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And all of those things bring about peace, being open to reason, being gentle, uh, being filled with mercy, producing good fruit leads to peace. And he continues, in a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James 3, 17 and 18. Blessed are the peacemakers. Now, we're to live our lives in peace. We're to work towards peace. Peace with God and a godly peace with others. So far as it rests on us to do. So we are to seek peace, we are to make peace, we are to live in peace. And Paul says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being in the same mind and having the same love, being of one accord and one mind. That unity of the brethren is so important for the work of the church and the life of the Christian. And he says, essentially, do these things in the love, the God of love and, the, and peace will be with you. The God of love and peace will be with you. Now, normally, in his blessings at the end of his letters, he writes something very similar. But he says, the, peace, the, the God of love and peace be with you. Here he's attaching it to the statements about the Christian life. And I think he does that to, to give more weight to the exhortation he's giving. Live like this because this is what it means to be a Christian. And if you're living like that, the God of peace and love will be with you. It's a small variation, but I think significant that we think about. These things are what God wants from his people. If we want to draw near to God, we must cleanse our hands of our sin. We must do what he has called us to do. And this is the, the joyful life he has called us to. He continues, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. Now, if you think about the customs in Israel and the Greco-Roman world of Paul's day, they would greet each other with a kiss on the cheeks, not an actual kiss with the lips, but they put their cheeks together. And that was how they greeted. I remember the first time I came to California and somebody wanted to hug me. Shake hands. We don't, we don't do that where I come. There's no hugging. Well, even in California, there's no kissing. <laughs> now, the culture has changed. For some reason, that fell into disrepute in most areas. But if you go to Greece today, when you greet somebody, when they're friends or they know each other, they will greet each other one side or both sides, depending on where in that region you are. 
I don't think the kiss is really what's at mind, nor is my New England prudism compared to California's grace. I remember I had a very liberal humanities teacher who made a trip out here when I was in Massachusetts, and she was horrified that somebody tried to hug her, and she shook their hand. It had nothing to do with politics. It's, it's a cultural thing. Well, what's at mind here is a godly greeting. You know, Judas greeted Christ with a kiss, but that was to identify Christ as the one who should be arrested. You know, it's not the kiss itself, but it is the holy greeting that he's calling us to. As brethren, we shouldn't be divided. We shouldn't be at odds with each other. We should love each other well enough that we greet from the heart a holy greeting to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then he finishes with a benediction. It's the one I usually use at the end of my worship services and we will use today. I don't have time to go into it because I'm already over time. But the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That is both a benediction, a blessing, as well as instruction to what we should be rejoicing about. We have the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the grace of the Lord Jesus. We have the love of God. We have the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. What a thing to rejoice about. And we can be confident of that, having examined ourselves, the dark and dismal duty of self-examination and making sure we're right with God should fill us with that confidence that we belong to him that we have an eternity promised to him, that we have great joy in him, and we can rejoice no matter what happens. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this final exhortation of Paul in the book of Second Corinthians, the instruction that gives us about our life that we might have true unity and true joy and we pray for that in our life. We pray for that in our churches. We pray for that with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And ask, Lord, for your presence in our hearts as we examine ourselves, not just to the matters of are we in Christ or not, but as to these matters. Are we aiming for restoration? Are we comforting each other, agreeing with each other, living in peace with each other? And are we living right before you? And so we would pray that you would help to show us our hearts where we can improve and help us, Lord, to be filled with that great joy that we know you and have an eternity promised us in you. We pray this in Jesus' name.